Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll visit the old fort ruins and other historic sites in New Smyrna Beach. Over the years, many people have had different ideas about what constituted the purpose of this uh, ruins here. Uh, some believe it was an English fort. Some believe it was a Spanish fort. We'll talk with one of the World War II pilots who trained at the Vero Beach Naval Air Station and then moved back to the area years later. The people in Vero Beach were just outstanding. They were wonderful people to get along with. And we'll meet Buffalo Tiger, former chairman of Florida's Miccosukee tribe. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Mozart wrote his Sonata in C for keyboard and violin in 1766. That same year, Andrew Turnbull established the colony of New Smyrnia, south of St. Augustine. Today, the town is known as New Smyrna Beach. Turnbull created his settlement during Florida's British period, which lasted 20 years from 1763 to 1783. Dot Moore has spent the last 25 years working with professional archaeologists and historians uncovering historic sites and artifacts in New Smyrna. She explains how the Turnbull colony was established. Dr. Andrew Turnbull, uh, along with a partner, Sir William Duncan, uh, received large land grants from the British government in 1766. Both of them 20,000 acres apiece, contiguous parcels. Turnbull himself was appointed plantation manager of these and he had all the responsibilities of recruiting people, uh, hiring people, uh, buying slaves, uh, providing whatever resources that were needed to establish what became the Smyrna settlement as it was called by the British. Turnbull arranged to bring Greek, Menorcan and Italian settlers to New Smyrna in 1767. He envisioned a colony that would grow cotton and other crops to trade with Great Britain. The ships carrying the settlers were plagued with rough weather and sickness, and 148 of the 1,403 people aboard died before the ships reached central Florida. Traditionally, Andrew Turnbull is remembered as a harsh administrator and even a tyrant, but Dodd Moore points out that more recent scholarship is making a less severe judgment of him. 
Recent uh, documentation uh, found in Dundee, Scotland archives uh, include Turnbull's letters to Sir William Duncan, his partner, and throw a no, new light on the care he took with uh, some of his indentured colonists, the, um, lots of ledger sheets that include the data or the equipment and supplies that he bought for these people. Um, he faced many problems here, uh, including political intrigue from the governor in St. Augustine after Governor Grant retired and left, a revolutionary war, there was a lot of sickness and drought, which uh, caused deaths and failures of crops. Sally Mackay is mayor of New Smyrna Beach. As the town's chief administrator today, Mackay says she can sympathize with both Andrew Turnbull and his followers. I just take my hat off to all of them for their, their courage and their tenacity. Uh, I mean, we're standing here with roads and modern facilities and mown grass, you know. Uh, these people got off the ship and there must have been dead silence and impenetrable forests and snakes and animals and everything that they were not used to whether they came from a similar climate, you know, temperature climate is, is, is very different. And they came here and they worked. And uh, Dr. Turnbull was um, sometimes reported as being very tough, but you know, he had more people here than they had at Jamestown in that colony. He was responsible for an enormous number of men, women, children, their food, their health, uh, their souls. One of the interesting things is uh, we've never found the graveyard. We know that a lot of people died. Somewhere around here there is a graveyard and uh, that would be very revealing. Mayor Mackay says that the city of New Smyrna tries to support historic preservation efforts and promote archaeological excavations. We have an archaeological um, uh, requirement that if any of the city properties are are dug up or removed or anything is done to the ground that the archaeologists such as Dot Moore come in and are given time to see what's in the ground. Unfortunately we can't insist that private citizens do the same thing but very often people will say yes you've got so many weeks come on in and, and, uh, and do the work. Archaeologists have a lot to work with in New Smyrna. Dodmore explains that part of what the original New Smyrna settlers built was an extensive canal system. Uh, the canal system was, we think, used primarily for drainage, though irrigation and transportation to some of the inland areas was most likely an asset of these. It said there were 25 miles of canals dug here, though in 1770 when the first map was found, uh, that depicts the settlement, only one canal is shown, and that is the, what's called the Gabardi or the South Canal, today's city limits line between New Smyrna and Edgewater. Uh, this was an extensive, back-breaking, hand-dug job by these people. Uh, probably slaves and colonists did the work. While standing on top of the old fort ruins, Dotmore discussed the structure. What can be seen today looks like a series of rooms with stone walls, but no roof. While the site is called the Old Fort Ruins, the fact is that no one is really sure what this structure was, but it was probably not a fort. We think, uh, based on some documentation in a letter that Turnbull wrote to Sir William Duncan, that it was the beginning of a mansion house for Duncan. This was on Duncan's 20,000 acres. Turnbull's was a little bit north of here. Uh, we don't have absolute proof of that. The 
only real account we have about him starting something here was a, um, a visit by some, um, some people here in 1776 who reported that he was beginning a mansion house. Uh, we've not been able to determine who these people were or just what they saw, but it, it sort of ties in with uh, Turnbull's desire to build a manor house for his partner, hoping he would come over here and help him. There have been many fanciful theories over the years regarding the Old Fort ruins, including one that relocates Sir Francis Drake's raid from St. Augustine to New Smyrna, asserting that New Smyrna was actually the original site of the city called St. Augustine. This and other theories are not generally accepted. Dotmore. Over the years, many people have had different ideas about what constituted the purpose of this uh, ruins here. Uh, some believe it was an English fort, some believe it was a Spanish fort. Uh, some believe that it was not associated with Turnbull, it was maybe built by uh, Ambrose Hull, who was the next landowner here after Turnbull left in 1777. Ambrose Hull came in 1801 and does, does record building a large stone house on a mount, which is what this, this area right here is part of a prehistoric Indian midden. Uh, dating to the St. John's II period uh, from about uh, 500 A.D. to 1565 A.D. But we're not 100% sure of any theories, uh, even the fact that it could be Turnbull's manor house. As Don Moore just mentioned, what are called the Old Fort Ruins are located next to a huge Native American shell midden. This area in the heart of New Smyrna is a fascinating location for anyone interested in archaeology. This shell midden, as it's called, was created by the St. John's or the Temecula people uh, in the St. John's II period from about 500 A.D. to 1565 A.D. Uh, we had done one uh, archaeological excavation on top of this area, uh, along with Dana St. Clair and, and his support from the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona, and went from the top to the bottom, about 11 feet deep. and found out that the prehistoric occupation here was from the same time period. So this midden was created in just a number of hundreds of years and seemed to be with the same people. Just a few miles from the Old Fort ruins in another public park are the Sugar Mill ruins destroyed in 1835 during the Second Seminole Indian War. The rounded arches and the coquina walls of the building have led to some creative, but not historically accurate, speculation. Dotmore. Uh, that structure was built uh, by a man named William Kimball for uh, Henry Kruger and William de Peister, who were wealthy New York investors. Uh, their hope was to make a fortune, of course, by processing sugar cane into sugar. Uh, the, the mill was, or the factory was built about 1830, but it was destroyed at the end of 1835 when the Seminoles rampaged and began the Second Seminole War. It was never rebuilt as a sugar factory. Uh, it's, it's been called an omission over the years by some other people who have different theories about this being the fort and that being the mission, Catholic mission out there. There's even a tale of some people insisting that a tunnel was built from this, this area underground all the way out to the sugar mill which is not quite plausible with the water table here. The Sugar Mill Ruins and the so-called Old Fort Ruins are fascinating remnants of Florida's past protected in public parks. 
The city of New Smyrna was established in 1766. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can listen to archived editions of this program, order fascinating books on Florida history and culture, and find out about all of the great activities sponsored by the Florida Historical Society.
During World War II, hundreds of pilots prepared for combat at the Vero Beach Naval Air Station. Years later, some of them wound up back in Vero. Janie Gould has more. Jim Curzon was a young Marine Corps pilot out of Pensacola when he was sent to Vero during the war. He did dive bomb training over Lake Wilmington, now known as Blue Cypress Lake, and later served in the Korean War. When Curzon was off duty in Vero, he enjoyed hunting and fishing. It wasn't hard to get permission to hunt on people's property. One day, he knocked on the front door of the home of a grove owner. I asked her if I would be all right if I hunted, and she said, yes, that'd be fine. Just go right on back there, but she said... Don't shoot in the trees or anything. I said, yes, ma'am, don't worry. Why? Because if I shot in the trees and any of the pellets hit the fruit, it rot the fruit. Her son, he's still around, Dancy. Eddie Dancy was just a boy then. And he said, I'll go with you and I'll take my dog. And he's a quail dog. I used his dog and we went and got some quail. And when my father came down to visit. I brought him out there, and we took the dog. We stopped, and he said, uh, well, he's that much of a dog. He's already run away. And I said, no, he's pretty good. The dog was sitting over there pointing. (laughs) Dad got his first quail before he got five steps away from the car. That was his introduction to Vero Beach. When Curzon's parents returned to their home in Illinois, they soon went through the region's worst blizzard in 58 years. It wasn't long before they bought a grove in Indian River County and moved down. The people in Vero Beach were just outstanding. They were wonderful people to get along with. You know, up north, we aren't the friendliest people. I mean, they aren't the friendliest people. I don't even classify myself with them anymore. Southern hospitality is what it was. And if you needed something, if you... Stop and ask somebody for something, information or anything. You got cooperated quite a bit. Do you remember that happening to you where you needed a ride or needed directions or, I don't know, just needed a meal, a home-cooked meal? I was never worried about being lost or being without, knowing that if I asked for something, I would either be given or be helped or shown a way to get it. The Indian River was another great place to be, especially when the shrimp were running. Curzon and his buddies from the airbase liked to go shrimping around the old Winter Beach Bridge. You'd take two or three people with dip net. When the shrimp got running, you could sit there with them three people and fill one of these big coolers up with shrimp. And I mean good-sized shrimp in a couple hours. So you'd take a cooler of shrimp back to the base, and you'd be very popular, right? Oh, yeah. You'd go down there to the mess hall, and they'd throw it in a big tub and boil them up for us, and we'd sit around there and eat shrimp and drink beer and have a good time. And then we had a lot of fun going out west of town with some of the locals, and I can't even remember their names, and and get a ride on an airboat. This was out in the St. John's Marsh? No, that's our marsh. This is what I thought was wonderful, and then when I come back down here, I almost cried, was you go out west of town here and get out about three miles. The marsh started, and the marsh went from there to 20-mile bend. There was all kinds of fish, especially uh, big-mouth bass. It was a lot of fun. After serving in Korea, Jim Curzon stayed in the military until 1958. Later, he was a pilot for the Dodgers and was associated with Mickey Mantle in a business venture. He also was Vero's tax assessor. Now he's retired and lives just a few miles from where Vero's Naval Air Station used to be. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report.
This is Florida Frontiers. When people think of Florida's Native Americans, the Seminole Indians are usually the first to come to mind. Today, though, our state is home to two distinct tribes, the Seminole and Miccosukee, each with their own customs and tribal identities. Bill Dudley introduces us to Buffalo Tiger, the Miccosukee's first chairman, a humble man who became an innovative leader. An airboat glides to a stop at a deserted tree island in the Everglades a few miles from the Tamiami Trail. Its driver is 83-year-old Buffalo Tiger, formerly chairman of Florida's Miccosukee Indian Tribe. Today he's showing a group of tourists a village where his people lived until a few years ago. Named Buffalo Tiger. I grew up here in the Glades, and Henehachi is my Indian name. I was born here, not this particular island, but uh, close by here. Tiger's soft voice and quiet manner give little hint of what he's accomplished over a long life. In 2002, he published his autobiography, Buffalo Tiger, A Life in the Everglades, with the help of close friend and Florida Atlantic University professor of history, Harry Kersey. The book was as much for his own people as for outsiders. And I think the educational program that he runs when he takes people to the island in the middle of the glades and explains the way um, the Miccosukees have always are used to live there and, and the changes that have taken place in the glades, I think that's very important. Today's nearly 600 Miccosukees live close to, but still separate from their neighbors, the more well-known Florida Seminoles. Though all are descended from a handful of people who retreated to the Everglades in the 19th century after the Indian Wars, Tiger says his people speak a different language and hold different values. We are more fishermen. We are hunters. We live wetland. They're more agriculture type of people, dry land. They can handle cattle pretty well. We couldn't do that. After growing up in the wilderness, at a young age, Tiger married a non-Indian woman and lived in Miami, before returning to act as a spokesman for his people during the 1950s, a time of transition for Native Americans as the federal government began cutting the tribes loose to handle their own affairs. Here in Florida, you had a situation where the people who would become Seminole Indians lived on federal reservations. They certainly wanted to keep the reservation lands and in order to do this, they ultimately organized themselves in 1957 as the Seminole Tribe of Florida. The Miccosukee people, a more conservative people living down in the lower Everglades, they did not want to live on reservations. They did not want to take part in federal government services. They wanted to be left alone. But they came to realize that their only protection was going to be recognition of some type as a tribe. We're not really uh, are born from under them. They're not born under us. But when Seminoles organized themselves in 1857, Miccosukee is not recognized by the United States. Matter of fact, they don't want to recognize us. They want to recognize the Seminole tribe, Florida. Then they can deal with the government. We cannot and they want us to walk under the, through them, and we don't want to do that. So the federal government kept telling uh, Buffalo, you, you're all part of one big tribe, the Seminole tribe, join them. Well, Buffalo and the Miccosukees wouldn't have any part of that. And ultimately, I guess, in sort of a desperate approach to this, 
They went to Cuba in 1959 and met with Fidel Castro and his representatives and received recognition as an Indian nation from the Castro government. And armed with this, they were going to go to the UN and to the World Court and so forth, but it didn't reach that point because first the State Department got the message over to the Bureau of Indian Affairs that let's recognize this new group. We can't have American Indians consorting with communist dictators in the Caribbean while we're in the midst of the Cold War and trying to sell our case to third world nations. The tribe achieved recognition in 1962. Tiger was elected chairman, a post he would hold for the next 25 years. In 1971, the Miccosukees once again made history, becoming the first tribe in the country to achieve true self-determination. That was 71, and they were so successful at this, and and, uh, perhaps a few other tribes, that by 1975, Congress passed the Indian Self-Determination Act. But while helping the tribe establish its place in the modern world, Tiger has struggled to preserve its cultural and natural resources. In the face of encroaching urbanization and environmental degradation of the Everglades, he is sustained by a powerful belief in the spiritual destiny of his people. Everything seems to be squishing us here. We feel it. We've been trying to tell young people and families, hey, it's going to be a lot of people come, and different laws going to come in. Take it away, your own traditional practice. Your language be gone. Your law be gone. You're lost. You have nothing. You're going to find yourself. You don't speak your own language. It's coming. Some people listen. Some people don't really care. That's going to happen sooner or later. Unless we woke up now and start talking to people why we are the way we are. What is it in us that makes it different from people who live in city and people who live in places like this? Former Miccosukee Indian leader Buffalo Tiger. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Be sure to join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.